It's good to see you all here and to see you if you're watching online. I think it would be fair to say with all that David has experienced so far in his life, and this is even before he sat on any throne, isn't it? I think it would be fair to say that David went to the school of hard knocks. He's had to grow up, he's had to toughen up, um, he's been toughened and trained really just through life, hasn't he? Uh, by God, through the trials and tribulations he's faced, uh, from fighting off lions and bears that we've heard of as he protected his sheep as a, as a shepherd, facing the taunts of his older brothers. We hear about one or two of them when he goes to face Goliath, but I'm sure that was actually just an expression of something that's probably taken place most of his life from his older brothers. And then he's dodging Saul's spear time and time again and being pursued by Saul relentlessly. And this has been happening for years. Well, and truly the school of hard knocks. In fact, little spoiler alert, sorry, but Saul's going to die in a few chapters' time at the end of 1 Samuel. But even then, there's another five chapters in 2 Samuel and another seven years in David's life before he reigns as king of Israel. There's a long time waiting, isn't it? But it's not just a time of waiting. It's a time of learning for David. A time of training. Through all those years, not only is he toughened up physically to face lions and bears and big giants like Goliath, He's actually growing emotionally, spiritually, in his faith, in his character. He's learning more and more about the nature and character of God. And he's learning what it means for him as David to trust the Lord in every day of his life, in every situation. And each of the lessons, each all of what we've been reading in 1 Samuel since David's appeared, is actually serving David well for when he does eventually sit on that throne in Israel. There's probably more than 15 years between when David's first anointed and when he claims the throne after Saul. That's a long time to wait, isn't it? It's a long time of training. How many people go to uni or Bible college for 15 years before they actually do what they've been trained to do? Most of us don't like waiting 15 minutes for something to happen, do we? 15 years. And yet when the Lord calls, when the Lord speaks and makes his promises to us, he is faithful, isn't he? And he will do what he has promised. And he will do it in his way and his time. Not ours. It's one of the things David's learning in this school of hard knocks. But more than that, in all this in-between time, God hasn't wasted a single moment. He doesn't waste a moment of the time in between. Not for David and nor for us. Those lions and bears that he had to deal with and learn to work out how to protect his sheep, they gave him courage and strength and faith in the Lord as he faced Goliath. He went there with that knowledge, with that experience, not just his own strength, but trusting in the Lord to give him victory. And your days and mine are no different. Every day we are in God's classroom, living life, but learning life, learning faith, learning who God is. We too are being taught and trained for the days to come in this life and for glory. God shows us his goodness and faithfulness one day 
so that in the next, when things don't, might not seem so good, we can still trust his goodness and faithfulness because he is unchanging. Would that be your experience? God is constantly growing us up. He's expanding our minds and enlarging our hearts towards him and maturing us in faith, growing us up as his children, shaping us up through joys and celebrations, but also through trials and tribulations, conforming us, we're told, into the very image of his Son. How else will we, you and I, ever learn to judge the nations, to judge angels, which is what we're told in the New Testament is going to take place? How are we ever going to learn that unless the Lord teaches us and trains us? And how are we going to stand firm in this life and contribute to life and culture and share the goodness of God with others if God himself doesn't train us in his grace and mercy and through our own lives and experiences to know him, to trust him, to share something of him with others. Sorry, Year 12s, there's a few of you here. Just when you thought your schooling was going to come to an end, every day we are all in God's classroom. The learning never stops. It shouldn't. We are always being shaped by God and by the experiences and the people he puts around us. Always learning lessons to be applied immediately as well as eternally. And today's lesson for David and for us might sound familiar because we've already seen it and sat through it in this series. We've already sung it today. The Lord is our salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. It's not our own doing. But salvation also comes, building on that lesson we've had earlier, what we hear this morning, is salvation not only is the Lord's doing, but it comes in his way and in his time. We can't rush the Lord. Let's take a look at the passage and enter David's classroom with him. Last week we heard of David, remember, um, sneaking up in the cave behind Saul, or at least his cloak, and cutting off a corner of his cloak. He had a, chan- a cloak. He had a chance to get rid of Saul once and for all, but didn't take it. And then in chapter 5, did you notice how abruptly it started? Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. And then the story goes on. This is Samuel. The book's named after him. The whole sort of story begins with the rise of Samuel and he gets one verse for his death. He actually gets a little bit more because his death pops up again later and then Saul actually tries to get in touch with him as he's dead a little bit later on too. But it's sort of striking, isn't it? Just the brevity of the mention that Samuel gets here. And maybe we think the story is just moving on, but I don't think that's actually the case. I think that's setting the scene between what's just happened and what's about to happen. And what happens again in chapter 26? We haven't heard from Samuel since chapter 16 when he anointed David. I don't know if you've noticed that. We haven't heard Samuel speak since then. We haven't heard of Samuel since chapter 19. David actually escaped there. Remember when Michal let him out the window, uh, running away from Saul? He actually went to Samuel in Ramah. And it was there in Ramah that Saul sent his men and all his men started prophesying and then Saul said, right, if my men can't do it, if you've got to do something, well, you've got to do it yourself. So he went off trying to pursue David. He ended up prophesying against his own will. But Samuel's death here and the brevity of it, I think is telling in itself. Samuel's gone. 
he's dead. The prophet of the Lord who has led Israel, has judged Israel, they asked him for a king through the Lord's grace, mercy and some reluctance. They now have a king. Kingship's well and truly in place. His task, in one sense, is done. All Israel assemble. That's no small task, is it? No small gathering. To mourn Samuel's death. They grieve his passing. They will miss his presence and his prophetic word. We're going to farewell Grant and Chris a bit later on this service. We'll miss them, won't we? Their presence and their prophetic word amongst us. But as it does for us and for Grant and Chris and for David here, life goes on. And it is going on. This brief moment is like just hitting the pause button for a moment, a little reprieve, but it doesn't put an end to the enmity that Saul has for David. The pause button's been hit, but before too long, it's back on. And David's training continues. This time without Samuel around to help. Without Samuel to speak God's word to the king, Saul, or to David, or to the people. David's going to need to learn how to seek that wisdom of the Lord himself. Samuel's actually had a lot less to do with David. Have you noticed that in his uprising than he did with Saul? But it is as if the mentor has seen enough and said enough. He says, right, you guys are on your own now. Work it out. The training's notched up a little bit. I've been showing you. I've been leading you. I've been guiding you. Let's see how you go. Not that David's on his own, not by any means. But Samuel is no longer there. And as I said, I think all of this is training for David. All of life's problems, all of his joys, all of the temptations, all of the mourning and celebrating is training, just as it is for us. It's still real life. It's still happening. It's very much substantial, but it's all teaching him as well for what's to come. This is David, the man after God's own heart, learning what it is to be a man after God's own heart. That makes sense? As in, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart when you're victorious over your enemies? What does that look like? You give thanks and glory to God. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart when your enemies are still breathing down your neck and pursuing you? How does a man after God's own heart act in that situation? What does it mean to be a man or woman after God's own heart when someone betrays you? or reneges on their promise, or selfishly fails to care for you as they should. David's going to have to work all that out. We learn those things too, don't we? David doesn't always get it right, and neither do we. Anyone under the age of 20 here, I can remember my days as a teenager looking up to adults, you know, anyone above 21 mature, responsible people, and especially by the time they're 30, just look like adults have got it together. Confident, you know, they they know their place in the world. Nothing goes wrong. They just hold it all well. They don't even seem to flinch when troubles come by. Guys, young people, don't be fooled. (laughs) We do often look up to people older and think that they've got it all together. But let me tell you, whether you're 30, 40, 50 or 80, we are all still learning, aren't we? Aren't we, Peter? We are all still in God's classroom, learning to walk, learning to walk by faith, 
in every new situation, every new stage of life that the Lord puts before us. David here gives us the perfect example of someone we think might have it all together. After all, he's a man after God's own heart. He's anointed by God to be king. But he has still got so much to learn. And some of it he learns through his failures. Nabal, we're told, in chapter 25, he was a harsh and badly behaved man. I think the version we had said he was surly and mean. Not a nice chap, is he? Worthless. One of his own men describe him in verse 17. We didn't have the whole chapter read for the sake of time. But he had little empathy for David and his men. He was certainly not going to be generous towards them. It was shearing time. If you've ever been on a farm around shearing time, who was I talking to? Was it Bev last week? Um, farm around shearing time, there's lots of food around because you want to keep the shearers well fed and keep them happy. They've got a lot of work to do and they work hard. And David and his men, it would seem they've been actually protecting the shearers. Until this time, they've been almost bodyguards, it seems, when we read the rest of the chapter. And therefore, therefore they feel they deserve a bit of what the shearers, uh, the shearers are about to receive. They want some of the tucker. And Nabal says, no way. <laughs> These are my men, you're not. It seems there's almost been an agreement that he's reneging on. Or at least David and his men, the shepherds themselves say, we were looked after well, but we had no trouble at all when David and his men were looking after us. But Nabal's a stingy, selfish man. He says, no way. I'm not giving all of my good food to them. That's for the shearers. And so David, in what I suggest is actually a rather rash and out of character response, because he's been insulted, straps on his sword and tells 400 of his men to do the same. There's no mercy. There's no negotiation. There's no trying to work this out or arguing the case. He just goes and he's going to give it to Nabal. He's going to teach him a lesson. Big time. Not one of his family are going to be left standing. Nabal is being foolish and stingy. His, old, his name means fool. But actually David is acting foolishly here as well. Maybe he's grieving so much for Samuel that in his grief he's just losing it in a moment. Perhaps the pressure of the last few days and weeks and months with Saul breathing down his neck has got to David and finally he's cracked and he just needs to vent and Nabal's the poor fellow at the end of it. Pressure can do that to us, can't it? Puts us under pressure and sometimes it's our nearest and dearest to actually get the worst of us. We can be quite cruel when we're under pressure. And we are not always as blessed and fortunate as David and Nabal are here. That is, to have someone like Abigail come and intervene and stop us doing something stupid in the rashness of the moment, in the heat of the moment. And I say both David and Nabal because they're both rescued here by Abigail, by Nabal's wife. We didn't hear it in the reading, but she hears what's taken place. She hears that her husband's not going to do anything for David and she rushes together a couple of hundred loaves of bread and a few animals that have already been slaughtered. This has all been prepared probably for the shearers. You don't make 200 loaves in a hurry, do you? But the food, and she says, no, no, I need to intervene here. I'm going to go to David. I'll give him what I think he deserves. She knows he's the anointed. He's going to be prince of Israel. She wants to honour him. She wants to rescue her husband. And she wants to be respected in David's eyes. So she intervenes. We're told she is both beautiful and discerning. But it's her discernment and discretion here that wins David's favour and actually saves her husband, Nabal, from David's wrath. But also saves David 
from pangs of conscience, we're told, from shedding blood without cause, and from working salvation with his own hand. Don't you wish you had a few Abigails in your life, if you look back? And maybe there have been times where someone has stepped in and said, wait, stop and think about what you're doing. David was about to take vengeance and work salvation by his own hand. Not his to do. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. That's the lesson David's learning here in this chapter. Abigail's commended for her timely intervention and the discretion with which she went about. And David acknowledges it was actually the Lord who sent Abigail to do what she did. Verse 32 of chapter 25, David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. That was the wrath of David that was coming Nabal's way, unless Abigail intervened as she did. In the end, it didn't do Nabal all that much good, did it? Because by the end of the chapter, he dies within a couple of weeks of this event. He's had a heart attack or something. He's partied that night and the next day he learns about what Abigail has done and he has a stroke or something and from that point on he's in bed and he dies 10 days later. But that's actually the whole point of the chapter. Have a listen to verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And he has kept back his servant, David, from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. What was David going to do? He was going to go and take vengeance himself. And what has he learned has happened? The Lord has done that for him. David was going to try to work salvation by his own hand. No, the Lord is our salvation. David then takes Abigail to be his wife. She also take, he also takes Ahinoam of Jezreel. We learn that Saul, Michal, the daughter of Saul, who was given to David as his wife, Saul was actually taken away and given to someone else. And then we come to chapter 26. And I think chapter 25 is like, here's the lesson, David. It's a very practical one, but this is like the theory lesson. And now it's time to see how you go with the prac. Let's see how you put this lesson into practice. Because chapter 26, if you were here last week, if you know chapter 24, it sounded awfully familiar, didn't it? Here's Saul coming to pursue David, but here's a chance where Saul's on his own, or he's actually not on his own, he's surrounded by 3,000 men this time. But here's a chance for David to get rid of Saul once and for all. Sounds very familiar. Some commentators say, actually, this is the same story, it's just a few different details, they've just up. I don't think it's that at all. And I think chapter 25 is pivotal in the fact that it sits between 24 and 26. Because I wonder if it wasn't for chapter 25 and what David's learned here with Nabal and with Abigail, I wonder if David's wrath and his rash foolishness may have actually been vented upon Saul at this point. 
given the opportunity that he had. Listen to the words of Abishai, David's man, who is so eager to do away with Saul. Verse 8 of chapter 26. Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke. You hear his eagerness? (laughs) Please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. It's only going to take a moment, David. All your troubles will be gone. The Lord has given him into your hand. How many times have you heard it said, or maybe you've said it yourself, I know this is from the Lord. I know the Lord is in this because it's just worked out so well. All the doors have opened. It just seems the right path to take because one after another, there's all these events that occur. It just seems to prove that God is showing his providence to me here. And sometimes that's spot on. Sometimes the Lord does work in those ways. But here we've got a situation just like that. Every door seems to be open. Everything seems to be channeling David to this point. The Lord's opened all the doors and he's provided just the right circumstance. Did you pick it up? It's the Lord who caused 3,000 men, a whole army, Saul's in the middle of them. David just walks through them all because they're all in a deep sleep that the Lord has put them under. Later on in verse 23, David himself says, The Lord put you into my hand tonight. The Lord gave you into my hand today, he says. Abishai's words to David, here's your moment, the Lord's given him into your hand, they're not untrue words, they're spot on. But his counsel, the action he wants to take, that's unwise, it's ungodly. Let me pin him to the earth. Saul's a sitting duck. And imagine the irony and the satisfaction of it. Saul's spear is right there. The same spear that David has had to dodge a couple of times himself. Imagine if that was that spear that Saul met the end of his life with. And Abishai is only too keen. One stab in the dark and he'll be gone. But have a listen to David's response in verse 9. Remember, everything has been put in place by the Lord. And David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That's really similar, really close to what David said back in the cave. Do not touch him. It's not for me to put a hand against the Lord's anointed. But David says more this time. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Hear the extension of David's faith here? It's not just not for me to put a hand against the Lord's anointed. The Lord will, in his time and in his way. David's faith is growing. David's faith in the Lord's way in the Lord's will, and in the Lord's timing. I ought to have the wisdom and the faith to know when to act and when not to act when all the ducks seem lined up, eh? No, says David, I won't do it. Despite everything lining up so well, despite the Lord preparing the way for him, this is not the right course of action to take. 
The Lord forbid, verse 11, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But he takes the spear and the jar of water that's by Saul because later he goes and confronts Saul and shows again that he could have done away with him to show Saul what David hasn't done. What looks like providence, the Lord leading the way and making it so clear and simple, is actually completely against the Lord's will on this occasion. Doesn't actually take too much wisdom or faith. Takes a lot of restraint. Abishai's there, he's keen, he's ready. But when the Lord's made it clear what his will is, even if all the doors open to go a certain path, if we know that's not the Lord's will, we should not take that path, should we? Because there's other forces at play, aren't there? Tempting us. And then there's other situations when it's not so clear. Seems all the doors are open, and but this should be the path we should take. But even then, we still need to be prayerful and discerning, don't we? Asking the Lord for wisdom, asking others for their wisdom to pray for us before we act. Always, whichever decision we make, trusting in the Lord, not ourselves, to work salvation, to bring success for our path to be straight. But as I said, David's action here is not just resistance or restraint against the temptation of getting rid of Saul. His words and his action here are those of faith. God will do it in his time, in his way. He adds that from what he said in the the, uh, cave last week. Not just I'm not going to kill him, but actually the Lord will deal with him. Whether it's this day or when he goes into battle, it's the Lord who will strike him down in the end. And I think he learnt that from last chapter. Because what did he say about Nabal? Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. The Lord has kept back his servant from wrongdoing and he has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. It's all the Lord's doing, not David's. When we're faced with a seemingly providential situation or when we're faced with temptation, are we going to take matters into our own hands and grasp hold of that which is not ours to take? Or will we wait and pray and discern the Lord's will? Waiting for the Lord's good time and for his good will and his good way that he has ordained for us. David acknowledges, as I said in verse 23, the Lord has put Saul into my hand this day. It was almost like it was a test for David. But he's learning. The end of chapter 26, this is what David says to Saul. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave me into your hand, into my hand today and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's the clincher here for David, for David's restraint. Saul is still the Lord's anointed. Saul is still king, even though David's going to be king. It's not for him to take Saul's life. To do that would be to take up arms against the Lord himself. No, says David, my throne and my reward, that will come to me, not in my time, not by my hand, it will come by the Lord's. Only by the Lord's. And the same's true for us, isn't it? 
Not that we're going to sit on a throne like King of Israel, but we cannot rush the Lord's ways. We can't take shortcuts or find the cheats. If you're a gamer and you look up and you find a cheat to get to the next level, it's not what we can do with life, is it? That often we try, try to grasp hold of that which is not ours yet. Whether it's money, possessions, sex, marriage, health, wholeness, contentment, joy. The Lord's will is the best will. The Lord's way is the best way. The Lord's timing is the right timing. And if we seek some other way, well then the consequences are going to be far from ideal. Imagine how it would have been for David had he acted murderously here. He would have won the throne through treachery and treason rather than through the Lord's anointing. Imagine the lack of respect he would have had from his army. Saul's army would have become his. His own conscience would have been pricked continually, blood on his own hands. He would have lost favour and respect with the people. And he would have been fighting not only against Saul, but against God. But more than all of that, more than what might have been had Saul acted murderously here, David's learning, isn't he? Learning to trust the Lord. His way, his will, his time. Not just for this moment, but for all the moments to come. He's going to have other enemies to confront other challenges to face. He's going to have other temptations put before him. And we know, don't we, down the track, David doesn't always show restraint like he does here. But listen to what David says to Saul. These are David's final words to Saul. This is their last confrontation in verse 24. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Sounds a little bit like the golden rule, doesn't it? Do unto others as you would have them to do you, except it's, as I have done to you, I want the Lord to do to me. I've shown you as precious in my sight today. May the Lord do so to me. David's final words to Saul are in fact a prayer. May the Lord, may he deliver me, may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. It's a prayer of faith, I think a prayer of confident faith. David is sure of what he hopes for, that the Lord does see his life and would see his life as precious and would deliver him out of all tribulation, even with his enemies breathing down his neck. 3,000 armies strong here with Saul. David trusts the Lord. He's waiting, he's patient in faith. There's another man, isn't there, another king in the line of David who also had some things to learn, Jesus. He learned obedience through life and suffering. Remember when he was in the temple as a young boy? He grew in stature and in favour and in wisdom with both God and man. And his life, we're told, is precious in the sight of God, rejected by men, the cornerstone, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Like Abigail, Jesus too came at just the right time to intervene, 
to rescue and redeem those who are about to do or have already done some really foolish things? Sin? So that our conscience could be clean? So that we would not bear the guilt of our sin? So that he would work salvation for us? And whoever believes in him, we're told, will not be put to shame. In fact, David's prayer here, his final words to Saul, may I be precious in his sight. Well, guess what? All the children of God are his beloved. They are precious in his sight. Their lifeblood, even their death, are precious as he knits us together in our mother's womb. And David Sorry, Jesus, like David here, or maybe vice versa, God teaches his sons well, doesn't he? Jesus did not entrust himself to men. David doesn't. Jesus didn't revile in return. He didn't seek revenge but offered forgiveness. He prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them. Not only for his enemies when he was here on earth, but for all of us as sinners. Paul calls us enemies while we were still enemies. Christ died for us. You see, I think the lesson here could be to learn from David to be like David and there's good things to follow here. But the truth of the matter is we're more like Saul. We're more like Nabal, selfish, sinful, ignorant, arrogant, totally at the mercy of God. We are easy pickings, just like Saul is there. For the Lord, we deserve his wrath. And the Lord in his holiness and power could strike us down just like that, couldn't he? Just one strike of the spear, wouldn't have to hit twice. And yet he doesn't do that. The Lord shows mercy to us. The Lord restrains his wrath in his divine forbearance and then unleashes it upon his own son for our sake. He has mercy on us, he lets us live and then he teaches us and trains us as his own children that we would know what it is for him to be father and that we would be made and created and conformed into the image of his own son. We need an Abigail here or there, don't we, to intervene in our lives at just the right time. We need Nabals and Sauls to confront us and teach us how to trust the Lord when things are put right before our eyes. And maybe we could try to work salvation our own way. We need to learn not to. You know, for all the wonder of Psalm 23... We love that psalm, don't we? And it's spoken so often at funerals, whether Christian or not, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But that psalm is a psalm for life as much as it is or maybe more so than for death. Let me tell you what I love about Psalm 23 and I think preaching through 1 Samuel and hearing about David here makes it all the more real and wonderful. Just to finish. You see, David was a competent and capable shepherd, wasn't he? He was a young man. And he's anointed and made to be king and he reigns well. Not perfect, but he rules and reigns well. A man after the Lord's own heart. But as a competent and capable shepherd and as an anointed king of Israel, David knows he's a sheep. 
the Lord is my shepherd. I'm a shepherd, but I need a shepherd. I'm a king, but I need someone who is Lord over my life. He knows he is a sheep who needs a shepherd to lead him and guide him into paths of righteousness. Not just a greener pastures, the nice still waters, but the one who leads him into paths of righteousness because we won't take them ourselves, will we? And here's the Lord right here for David, being that shepherd. And he's here for us today. We won't find any paths of righteousness ourselves. We need his good shepherding hand. We need his rod and his staff to comfort us, encourage us and prod us. They have to hook us sometimes and pull us back and sometimes to give us a good poke. And he intervenes too, doesn't he, when necessary, restraining us. He gives us ways of escape when temptation is before us. And he's always teaching us. He's always guiding us. He knows his sheep. And as sheep we know his voice. Always in God's classroom. You ever got to construction sites or roadworks and you see the sign work in progress? We could all hang one around our neck, couldn't we? We're all a work in progress. But we can also be confident, just as Paul is in Philippians, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no better teacher, is there, than the Lord himself, our shepherd, one who's full of goodness, faithfulness, full of grace and truth, one who not only tells us what to do, but shows us what to do as well. Let me finish with these words from 1 Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, Son and Spirit, you are our shepherd. And in you, with you as our shepherd, we have all that we need and shall not be in want. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You restore our soul. You lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And you prepare a table before us in the presence of our enemies and anoint our heads with oil. Our cup overflows, Lord. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. 
and we shall dwell in your house forever. Amen.